Probably few teenage girls have ever reacted well to their fathers complaining about their boyfriends. But in this case, Sylvia Herman listened. Her father, Lothar Herman, a German Jew living in Argentina, was blind in both eyes but suspicious about his daughter's new boyfriend. It was less the boyfriend's intense anti-Semitism that piqued his interest. It was more the few details Sylvia knew about the boyfriend's uncle, whose name was Ricardo Clement. Ricardo Clement, as we know, was really Adolf Eichmann, one of the chief architects in The Final Solution. He was living free in Argentina in the 1950s. Sylvia's boyfriend wasn't his nephew, but his son, Klaus. Eichmann was pretending to be the uncle to throw off any suspicion of his real identity. Still, tons of people knew who he was, but they were all friends and admirers in the tight-knit community of ex-Nazis living the good life in Argentina. By this point, the Allies had stopped really looking for him, the Israelis were otherwise occupied, and the few Jews left still on the hunt were thrown off by scant clues and false leads. Yes, Adolf Eichmann was doing just fine as Ricardo Clement in Buenos Aires. It would take a few years for Lothar Herman's suspicions to unravel Ricardo Clement's carefully crafted life, but unravel it would, on a muddy street in the pitch dark in May of 1960. 60 years ago this month. Last episode was all about how Eichmann escaped. Today, it's about how he was found. This is the second episode of our mini-series on Israel's capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. It's not known exactly when or where Sylvia, 15 years old in the mid-1950s, met her boyfriend Klaus, then 19. It was probably within a local German expat community. She knew of her father Lothar's Jewish background, but she wasn't raised in the tradition. Lothar Hermann had been imprisoned for his socialist beliefs in the Dachau concentration camp in the 1930s, he was beaten so badly there that he eventually went blind. He escaped to Argentina after his release, though much of his family wasn't so lucky. He maintained an active interest in the former Nazis in Argentina, keeping informal tabs on the various rumors swirling about. Lothar's interest in his daughter's dating life was stirred when she told him her boyfriend's name, Klaus Eichmann. Remember, it was only Adolf Eichmann who changed his name. His family was operating on the lie that he had died and they were now living with their uncle Ricardo, so his wife and children kept their last name. Now there are differing versions of what happened next. Some say that Lothar, intrigued by the name Eichmann, encouraged his daughter to deepen the relationship and even approved of her visiting the Eichmann home. There she encountered Uncle Ricardo, whom Klaus slipped up and called Father. When she reported that fact to Lothar, he became convinced that it was Adolf Eichmann. Another version of the story has the four of them meeting for coffee. Klaus and Uncle Ricardo, Lothar and his daughter Sylvia. It was at that meeting that the blind man became convinced he was speaking with the architect of the final solution. There are still other variations of just how Lothar confirmed his suspicions, a story which he never fully told in public. However he ended up convinced, Lothar Herman reached out to someone he thought could do something about it. Fritz Bauer was the district attorney for the West German state of Hesse. 
He too was a Jewish socialist who had been imprisoned by the Nazis, but later fled first to Denmark and then Sweden, and that's how he survived the Holocaust. As a high-ranking judicial official in post-war Germany, he set about pursuing and prosecuting former Nazis. In 1956, he issued an arrest warrant for Adolf Eichmann and others for murder. It may have been the newspaper accounts of this effort that inspired Lothar Hermann to think he found Eichmann and to reach out to Fritz Bauer. The two began to exchange information as Lothar deepened his private investigation. Bauer thought that Hermann may very well have found Eichmann, and he, in turn, reached out to someone he thought could do something about it. The Israelis. To his neighbors in Israel, Isser Harel was an under five foot tall, quiet man who did something vague and boring in some minor government agency. In reality, he was one of the most powerful men in Israel, reporting directly to David Ben-Gurion. For Isser Harel was the head of two of Israel's most well-known intelligence agencies. Israel in the 1950s and still today had two main intelligence agencies. One was called the Shin Bet, which handled internal security. Think of it like the FBI. The other is the Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations, usually just known as the Institute. The word for institute in Hebrew is Mossad. Think of these guys as the CIA, gathering foreign intelligence and carrying out covert operations. Nowadays, there is a separation between the two agencies, but back in the 1950s, things were just getting off the ground, and there was a lot of overlap. And running the show was Isser Harel, who had helped start Israel's intelligence agencies from the beginning of the state. Neither Shin Bet nor the Mossad had yet put much effort into tracking down former Nazis. It's not hard to understand why if you've been listening to this podcast. From steady warfare with its Arab neighbors to constant terrorist attacks, the pursuit of nuclear power, the Cold War, a struggling economy, and many other challenges, Israel simply didn't have a lot of resources to go chasing after every last rumor for every last escaped Nazi. Shin Bet and Mossad were small agencies highly preoccupied with present-day threats. Those from the past weren't such a high priority. At the same time, Israel was developing a delicate and controversial relationship with West Germany, which I talked about back in episode 81, Blood Money. There were a lot of ex-Nazis in positions of political power in West Germany, which is a subject for a whole other podcast, and Israel didn't want to embarrass the West German government too much. And there's a cultural element to that as well. In a warrior culture hyper-focused on survival and progress, Holocaust survivors were largely expected to stay quiet. There was little appetite for hearing their stories in the 1950s, as they were too often viewed as weaknesses and victims in a country that emphasized strength and resistance. There wasn't the broad awareness of the knowledge of the Holocaust that we have today. In the 1950s, there were a few books written in Europe and America, and a couple of films, but nothing like what we have today. So many survivors in Israel were alone, having lost their whole families. Or if they did rebuild their lives, it was often predicated on holding back their trauma. The irony of Israel, the Jewish state founded in part to ensure the Holocaust could never happen again, was that it expected the survivors to keep to themselves. And that too fed an institutional reluctance to chase down Nazis. Still, some targets were irresistible, and Adolf Eichmann was at the top of that list. Isser Harel agreed to send an Israeli operative to Argentina in the beginning of 1958 to follow up on Lothar Hermann and Fritz Bauer's suspicions. 
They had tied Ricardo Clement to a specific address in a neighborhood of Buenos Aires. The Israeli agent went to check it out. He found a dilapidated apartment in shabby condition, and after some brief surveillance, didn't see anyone who fit Eichmann's description. He concluded that a high-ranking, powerful Nazi like Adolf Eichmann wouldn't stoop so low to live in such a slum. It just couldn't be him. Issa Harel shut down the investigation but maintained contact with Fritz Bauer and Lothar Hermann and kept gathering intelligence. He just didn't think it was really Eichmann, and he had bigger fish to fry. Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem, Shalom Boachem Yeshalom, Aleichem, Shalom of course, it was Adolf Eichmann living a blue-collar existence. We won't argue that his life in Argentina was rich and glamorous, but he was living free. He had his family. He and his wife had a fourth son, born in 1955. He had more or less steady work, which he obtained through his ex-Nazi network that looked out for him, backed by the support of the Argentinian government. He was a celebrity in that world. They all knew who he was. He even sat for extensive interviews with a former SS man turned writer putting down in memoir form his recollections of the Nazi years and his role in the final solution. Had the West Germans, the Mossad, the CIA put a little elbow grease into it, they could have found Eichmann by the mid-1950s. But as I mentioned, no one was particularly motivated. Still, he was careful with his identity. He was purposely not living a flamboyant lifestyle and a family moved several times. Although he didn't much miss the riches of his previous life, he missed the prestige. As his name became ever more tied to the final solution, he enjoyed his role as the resident expert on the Third Reich and the murder of the Jewish people. It annoyed him that his name was dragged through the mud on the international stage, and he couldn't do a thing to rehabilitate his reputation. So he talked to anyone who would listen. He later acknowledged how reckless that was. The strange irony is that he was now most protected by outside disinterest and by Israel's conviction that Ricardo Clement wasn't really Adolf Eichmann. But Fritz Bauer kept at it, convinced that the Mossad had gotten this wrong. In 1959, he went back to Isser Harel. This time, he said, I've nailed it. A source had given him the same information as had Lothar Hermann, that Clement was Eichmann and was living at this particular address in Buenos Aires. Who was this anonymous source? The Mossad has never revealed it. Probably it was someone in Eichmann's inner circle of compatriots who was talking to German intelligence, and someone in German intelligence in turn gave the tip to Bauer. So Isser Harel was getting more and more convinced, but there still remained problems. For one, it was hard to say what Eichmann looked like these days. It had been 15 or 20 years since the last reliable photograph. How would they know for sure if they saw him? In yet another fortuitous coincidence, Eichmann's father died in February of 1960, and the famous Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal, who kept close tabs on the Eichmann family, happened to see the announcement in a small local newspaper in Austria. He sent someone to take undercover photos of the funeral in case Eichmann showed up. He didn't, but his brothers did, and it was said that Eichmann looked like his brothers. The photographer snapped away, and the pictures quickly made their way into the Mossad's thickening dossier. All of this, writes Bettina Stangneth in her incredibly rich account of Eichmann's escape and capture, all of this was a result not of a chain of events, but a series of threads that gradually wove themselves into a net. 
from Lothar and Sylvia Herman to Fritz Bauer to Simon Wiesenthal to Issa Harrell, and involving many others I haven't mentioned, all conspired in their own separate ways to bring Adolf Eichmann to his fate, and without him realizing it. Issa Harrell was sold. So was Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. Put together a team, he ordered Harrell, go to Argentina, capture him alive, and bring him back to Israel. Zvi Aharoni lay next to a railroad track on a low embankment, overlooking a single home on Garibaldi Street, outside Buenos Aires. He was 38 years old, a top interrogator with Israeli intelligence, and had lost most of his family in the Holocaust. Now he lay in wait for the man who engineered their murders. It was two in the afternoon on March 19, 1960. Aharoni had been investigating for a few weeks already, trying to track down Ricardo Clement. He finally found this address on Garibaldi Street, which in 1960 was far outside the city. It was a poor area with few city services, no electricity or water utilities. To live out there was a pretty Spartan existence. He and another recruit had been lurking around the neighborhood and had managed to take photographs of the house and the surrounding area with a camera hidden in a briefcase. Unfortunately, they had also slipped up a couple of times, bumping into suspicious neighbors and clearly out of place. There wasn't much reason for foreigners to be out there, and those suspicions got back to Eichmann. He too was nervous but brushed off the encounters as nothing more than coincidences that didn't add up to anything. On March 19th, Zvi Aharoni was poking around the neighborhood yet again, sauntering by the Clement residence. Suddenly he saw a tall, bald, thin man in his fifties doing the wash in the yard. Without a glance, the man turned and went back into the house. Aharoni knew it instantly. It was Eichmann. The mass murderer had finally been found. The Israeli operation then kicked into high gear. Nearly a dozen Mossad and Shin Bet agents poured into Buenos Aires, including Issa Harel. Everyone had a particular area of expertise. There was a guy to handle the logistics of buying safe houses, a guy to maintain the fleet of cars they need to move around, people to conduct surveillance, an expert forger to make false papers for everyone, a doctor, even someone who knew their way around and could shop for food and cook. This motley crew tended to have at least one thing in common. Almost all of them had a direct connection to the Holocaust. Either they were survivors, or they had lost family, or both. They were thus highly motivated to see the operation through to success. Peter Malkin was chosen to be the one who would actually grab Eichmann and wrestle him to the ground. Born in Poland, Malkin was nine years old when his parents and two brothers fled Europe for Palestine. His older sister, Fruma, who had a husband and three children, stayed behind, and all were murdered by the Nazis. Shortly after hearing the news in Israel, his father and one of his brothers died from the shock and grief. It was only him and his mother, and by his own admission, Malkin shut out the terrible memories. He distinguished himself in the Haganah before 1948, and soon became an accomplished operative in Israel's fledgling intelligence service. Peter Malkin understood the gravity of, of the operation. A task of almost biblical weight, he said. Eichmann, he went on, was not so much a man to me as an abstraction, a myth. He desperately wanted to tell his mother, but held to the secret. I felt not a fear, I felt a responsibility 
that I have to do it in any way. I have to bring this man because I knew it's not only our team wants it. There was millions of people who waited that this man will be brought and, and put on a trial. And if you take uh, the meaning, who is this man? If you lose him this time, you'll never see him again in your life. That was Peter Malkin speaking years later. The operation was hugely complex and crazy expensive. The Israelis rented several properties since the whole team couldn't stay in one place and they needed backup options if they had to suddenly move. They needed a bottomless supply of rental cars, fake IDs, fake travel papers, fake tickets, fake license plates for the rental cars, and backups for their backups. Each individual had to memorize his cover story down perfectly in case he was stopped and questioned. Not uncommon in a heavily militarized country like Argentina was then. Logistical problems were everywhere. Rental cars in Argentina were in terrible shape. Every time they rented one, their expert mechanic would tear the engine apart and rebuild it. He had to build special mechanisms for each car so that the Israelis could pop on and off different license plates to thwart anyone trying to follow them. And they had to find a way to bring in stuff that they couldn't carry on their person. In his excellent book on the operation, the writer Neil Bascom itemizes the materials Israel sent by diplomatic pouch, which then had to be covertly handed off to the team. Handcuffs, hidden cameras, sedatives, small drills and woodworking tools to renovate the house, lockpicks, powerful binoculars, flashlights, forgery kits, makeup kits with false teeth and wigs, and more. Not the kind of stuff for your carry-on bag. The safe house had to be prepared to hold Eichmann. A hidden room had to be built and then concealed in case of a search. But the operatives also had to be careful in their comings and goings, and in noise. They didn't want to attract attention from their neighbors. For weeks, the Israeli team holed up in their safe houses, planning every last detail and trying to cover every contingency for every step along the way. They had three separate tasks. First, capture him alive without anyone noticing. Two, keep him in the safe house for possibly several days. And three, smuggle him out of the country, also without anyone being the wiser. They had to answer a million different questions. What if the getaway car broke down? What if Eichmann barricaded himself in his house? What if the police raided the safe house? What if Eichmann had a heart attack from the fear? It was the riskiest operation Israel had yet carried out, and everything could go wrong. Every night for weeks on end, the team took turns surveilling the Eichmann home on Garibaldi Street. They had to know his routine. Every evening at 7.40 p.m., his bus rolled up at a stop 80 yards from his house. He and another woman got off at the same time. She turned one direction, he the other. He would pull a flashlight out of his pocket and walk briskly but not quickly down the road to his home. He would then do one lap around his house. Was he checking the perimeter like a guard? Nope. Turned out he liked to check on his small vegetable garden before going inside. Every night like clockwork, never missed a beat. And all the while, watching from the darkness unbeknownst to him, Israel tracked his every move. There still remained a hint of doubt. Was it really Adolf Eichmann living such a shabby existence? Or were they just following an Argentinian named Ricardo Clement? Isser Harel sat down with the team. 
You were chosen by destiny to guarantee that one of the worst criminals of all time, who for years has succeeded in evading justice, would be made to stand trial in Jerusalem, he said. For the first time in history, the Jews will judge their assassins. And for the first time, the world will hear the full story of the Edict of Annihilation against an entire people. Everything depends on the action we are about to take. It was May 11th, 1960, and the Israelis had their plan in place. At 7.30 p.m. that night, they would head to Garibaldi Street. There would be two cars. As Eichmann exited the bus, the first car would turn on its lights, temporarily blinding him. As he turned the corner by his house, the second car would be there with the hood up, as one of the agents pretended to be fixing it. As Eichmann walked past the car, Peter Malkin would cross his path, grab him by the throat, and wrestle him in the vehicle. Another agent would slam down the hood, everyone would pile in, and the two cars would take off. For weeks they had been practicing this maneuver. The whole thing would take 12 seconds. You know, till you don't do these things, it's always you have this fear, even you don't admit it. Now, how I acted normally is, when I was with a team, I kept my fears to myself. But for sure, there was a fear, maybe I wouldn't do it. Then the zero hour came. On the morning of May 11th, Peter Malkin prepared the hidden room where they would stash Eichmann. Fresh seats and a blanket, striped pajamas, one towel, a black handkerchief and motorcycle goggles to serve as a blindfold, a jug of water and an empty glass placed just far enough away that Eichmann, lying on the bed, couldn't reach it, a toothbrush and toothpaste, comb and brush, nail clippers, no razor blades, of course, a pair of handcuffs shackled to the bed. As night began to fall, the team got into their vehicles, headed to Garibaldi Street, and waited. They arrived at 7.35 p.m., expecting the bus at 7.40. Malkin got out of the car and stood a little ways away. The hood was popped. The other car positioned itself to turn on its headlights. At the appointed moment, the bus rolled up at the stop, and nothing. No one got off. He wasn't there. There was a panic. Was he on to them? Had he slipped away? Were they about to get caught? Malkin chose to wait. Twenty agonizing minutes later in the dark, another bus pulled up, and this time Ricardo Clement got off and began his usual walk home. We were fifteen yards apart, Malkin recalled. I could hear his footfalls, regular as ticks on a clock. Would he pause at the sight of the car? No, he didn't even hesitate. Twenty-five feet between us. Fifteen. I saw him. I could see his eyes. He was frightened and started in a way to retreat one step. I said to hell with everything. As he passed shoulder to shoulder with Clement, Malkin turned and said the Spanish phrase he had been practicing for weeks on end. Un momentito, senor. The Israelis had all kinds of contingencies for what would happen if Ricardo Clement wasn't actually Eichmann. They would drive him hundreds of miles away, pay him a bunch of money, and tell him to keep quiet forever or else. If they got caught, Isser Harel had determined they would likely spend several years in jail. In that scenario, said Harel, I will be responsible for taking care of your families back in Israel. 
The first stage of the operation was complete. They had captured Ricardo Clement. Now the second and third stages awaited, positively identifying him, holding him for several days, and then making their escape from Argentina. Today's music is Avishai Cohen, Dmitry Olevsky, and Oswaldo Golijov. Enjoy the next episode, which is available right now. Lehitraot. See you later. Shalom alechem alechem shalom Boachem leshalom alechem shalom Barachuli leshalom alechem Elyon Betzetchem leshalom